This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Hitler, he has got one ball, Goring has two, but they are small. Himmler has something similar, but poor old Goebbels has no balls at all. That might be your best work yet. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, number 37, The Bridge on the River Kwai. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight, uh, we are discussing said movie, uh, the 1957 David Lean classic that won Best Picture. Um, Just quickly to go through everything for you, the basic plot summary outline... British POWs are ordered by their Japanese captors to construct a bridge of strategic importance and are happy to sabotage and delay the progress until their commanding officers order them to continue the work unhindered to its completion. But are his actions tantamount to collaborating with the enemy? This, uh, as I mentioned a second ago, this was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Hayakawa, won Best Picture uh, director for David Lean, actor for Alec Guinness, adapted screenplay for Michael Wilson, Carl Foreman, and Pierre Bouillet. I'm taking yes. a guess at that pronunciation. Uh, cinematography, film editing, and original score. It's a National Film Registry entrant, uh, a joint collaboration between the Americans and the British, and it was also on the AFI 100 list in 1998 as the 13th best film 2007 is the 36th best film. I just want to make a small correction, and that is is that Michael Wilson and Carl Foreman were not nominated for best screenplay At because the time. they were yes they were blacklisted. However, it does not actually it's not a correction per se. They did actually get awarded by the um, Academy posthumously for their work on this movie. Yes. So they did actually win it but and get recognized. Unfortunately, it was not during their lifetime due to circumstances well outside of their control. All right. Uh, so what is your relationship to this movie? Well, I have two relationships to this movie. Number one, that I saw this movie with my dad years and years ago um, when it was on the network TV. And he explained all this to me um, during a time when I was about, oh, I'd say seven or eight. And I still really got into studying World War II and what was going on with World War II. And so I was fascinated by it. The other is, is that when your sister was actually an exchange student in Thailand, I went to visit her. And I have actually been inner tubing on the River Kwai. Okay. I actually didn't know that you guys had done that. Yes. we. It was down the lower portion of the river. Um, you could have actually taken a tour by bus up and seen the actual bridge itself and the, um, the, uh, the railroad itself that was going through. But um, I was the only one interested in that, so it didn't happen. Funny enough, uh, this is, movie is based on a book that's rife with historical inaccuracies. The bridge itself is not on the River Kwai. It is on a completely different ri- uh, river 
it was a guess by Bouyer when he wrote the book as to whether or not it was on this particular river in Thailand. I probably should mention that it's a misnomer even in the title. As far as my relationship to this movie, it's only the second time that I've seen it uh, in our rewatch for this episode. The only other time uh, was, I want to say two or three years ago, in my quest to see every Best Picture winner ever. So obviously this is on the list for 1957. Uh, I didn't remember huge portions of this film. I remembered the general outline, but there are a lot of things that I, I certainly forgot in my watching of it. And I think we do watch it a lot more closely when we're doing this show. So I appreciated rewatching it. And I think there are several movies that I'm going to appreciate rewatching for that exact thing that I either didn't get uh, everything out of the first time or I wasn't watching as closely. And so it'll it'll be a different experience the second time around. All right. Uh, so I guess our next general question is, what is this movie about? That is an extremely good question in this film. I have wrestled with that since I watched the film. I watched it almost uh, 10 days ago, and I still am having difficulty with it. Without tipping off a, a particular scene in the film that I want to nominate for one of the best scenes, it, it, it's almost where you lose the forest for the trees. It's you, you get so caught up in doing one thing, you forget what it is you're actually doing and, and don't understand the impact of it. And I think that's to some extent what this movie is about, is emphasizing that that point that you sometimes are so focused on trying to achieve one goal that you forget that you're actually hurting yourself by doing something other. Is David Lean British? Yes. That's what I thought. <laughs> now, there's a key difference in the script of this from the book the william holden character is american in the movie and he is british in the uh original book and i think there's a significant difference to how this movie plays out its tone its themes and its attitude because what you're getting is uh, let, let's just take it from the the standpoint of the the overall scope of the movie uh william holden's character is in the camp to start the movie and you have the British character come in with his whole battalion or regiment or group, whatever his command group is. And then they diverge in opposite directions after they cross paths where Holden is, thinks the only way to survive the camp is to escape. Whereas Nicholson specifically goes in the opposite direction. The only way to survive the camp is figure out a way of pridefully acquiescing to the enemy, but in a way that keeps you having a certain level of purpose. So each of them has a purpose, but it's divergent. And then, obviously, Holden escapes. He's drawn back into the service. They go back, and they're supposed to blow up the bridge. That is the purpose for Nicholson. And it culminates with them once again crossing over where their purposes overlap at the end. And so by extension, I think this I, – I find it ironic 
that a lot of the research for this movie says that um, James Donald and Alec Guinness and some of the other British actors had such a hard time with David Lean because this is an anti-British film. I thought that before I did the research, and so then when it's coming back up in the research, I'm like, of course it is, because Nicholson's entire character exemplifies the statement of the British, keep calm and carry on. It's this weird pride that they had, and it's going to come up in quotes. I, I have something to really hit home on this point at, at a different part in the show, but with the um, American, I want to say scrappiness, that we are kind of more of a survivor mode, we're uh, much more guerrilla tactics, and you want to even take on the symbolism of the difference between the revolutionary war that started the the two divergences to begin with. I mean, you could take a, a whole scene off of that where the Americans are scrappers, they're doing it with um, farm weapons and muskets and bayonets where you have the formal British army and they're doing this with all their pride and their uh, formal uniforms and all of this. And the, the differences between the two but ultimately that they converge and then they leave you with such an open-ended, I guess, conclusion of where and what your responsibility is toward as a POW. Okay, you, ha you have to understand that the soldiers that were in the camp, Nicholson and all the rest of those, had surrendered at Singapore. Singapore had approximately 100,000 British or uh, soldiers from the Commonwealth, uh, or I mean, uh, Indian, uh, Burmese, Egyptian, etc. All right, this was supposed to be a fortress, and the fact that they um, surrendered to a force that was about one tenth of their size in the Japanese soldiers was a huge embarrassment. So when you say that this is anti-British. That's exactly what it is, because this is putting on display the soldiers that basically went, their, their command told them to surrender. The British High Command in, in London said not to surrender, and they surrendered. And it puts them on basically trial as to where these people were coming from, that they basically shot... Uh, morale in England or in uh, Great Britain to almost nothing. This happened right after or within two or three weeks of um, the U.S. involvement in Pearl Harbor. And so to put these people then into this movie is extremely anti-British. So just from a subject material, I'm going to expand on that a little bit. We see this a lot maybe in sports. But do you know that title-winning team, the team that's been on top for a number of years, and they've earned the right to be a certain level of arrogant? Uh, I won't say that the British earned that, but they were coming off the peak of British colonialism and the height of their uh, ability as an empire, quote-unquote. And this is where they're really declining to be the preeminent power in the world. We come out of World War II, the United States and Russia are the primary powers moving forward and supplanted the United Kingdom as being the preeminent force or economy, culture on Earth. 
And there's a dichotomy of dichotomy of the switch happening in the middle of this movie. And so the the sense of pride is a definite factor as a theme. The other one I'd like to mention as far as what this is about, I think this is a real testament of Will movie. Anytime you see any of these POW-type movies, it's always a, a matter of will of survival. I think it would be interesting if someone ever did a um, biopic of like John McCain as a uh, POW in Vietnam for the exact same reason. I, we've gotten a few of these movies. I don't. Some of them are more successful than others. Some of them seem like much in the same way that I thought um, a different movie that we're going to be covering obviously later because I, I think it might end up in our eventual top ten. But Spielberg did Schindler's List. He didn't pull any punches and he didn't make any commentary. He just gave you its full rawness. I think if you went and did one of those POW camps from Asia of any time in the 20th century and just made it a raw POW story, that it would be incredibly impactful and maybe give us some additional commentary on what things were. So the the fact of the tie-in of this movie, I, I this ends up in a somewhat of a more feel-good story that you wouldn't necessarily... Uh, expect from a POW from what you would think of uh, if I told the average person oh I'm going to watch this prisoner of war movie where they build a bridge you might get a few people that oh okay that might be interesting but most of them are not going to think it's a rewatchable movie this is somewhat rewatchable so I will give it that from an emphasis on, on that particular side but it does a good job of highlighting the will of survivorship from all those involved, from Holden surviving his escape to uh, him and I, I'm forgetting Jack Hawkins' character's name, but them surviving the jungle on the way back to Nicholson surviving the hot box to all of the things that went through this, even to a certain degree, Saito surviving the movie up to that point. So there, there is a significant element of the, the will of people given extremely difficult circumstances. And so it takes me or highlights something that has resonated with me lately. Those in the middle of extreme grief or tragedy get through it by having purpose, and that ties into the other big theme that we already mentioned, where they find that purpose, essentially. All right, so who was your best performer? This one was really difficult for me. I think ultimately I came to the conclusion it was Alec Guinness. It it would have been so easy to turn that character into a uh, a cliché. Yes, there's a bit understated. And I've now watched this twice. I think he actually does a better job in other... Honestly, I think he has more memorable performances than the other three movies that he's famous for. So it's a little bit surprising that this is the one he won Best Actor for, because I think he does actually a better job in Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and Star Wars. So it's interesting. I understand he clearly tried to do it from a level of sympathy for the British because of uh, his heritage and his um, national pride, but... This particular role, I never, I never, 
I guess I never related to his character, and I don't understand... I don't relate to his character pretty much from the get-go. Maybe a little bit in the situation of the rules enforced to the officers and, and upholding a certain structure, but even that I don't get because I, I overly relate or understand the background of the Americans, which would say, these people aren't going to obey the rules. Why would I expect or hold them to that? But that's British colonialism. Well, I understand. And that's that's the divergence of this movie. I went with David Lean. I, I forgot how beautifully shot this movie is. You could have easily gone with cinematography. There is an interesting background to this movie, and I don't know if you came across it in your research, that they sent the full set of film back to Britain, but they couldn't ship it the normal way that they uh, originally wanted to because they were going through the middle of the Suez Crisis. So it actually sat on a Cairo um, tarmac for two weeks and somehow miraculously was not harmed. And thank God, because this is one of the more beautifully shot films of the 50s, some of the aerial visuals of this are just outstanding uh, from a directorial work. I think he also got significantly good performances out of most of the major actors and characters from this movie, as well as tying in. He took a little bit of exception to the fact that he was never given some level of credit for helping write the script on this as well, that he helped at least foster or uh, give some level of uh, screenwriting to the overall finished product. So I think from all of those standpoints, because there are so many good parts about this and all of it had to come together in such a way, I give it to him. Well, it's interesting because this film had been offered to William Wilder. It had been offered to uh, John Ford. It had been offered to a whole host of really great directors who all turned it down. And I'm trying to remember, was this Universal or Paramount? Uh, I think it's actually Columbia. Columbia, okay. Well, the head of Columbia was notorious for being kind of a um, blaggard. And so, to a large extent, the directors all turned it down because they didn't want to work for this guy. And what ended up happening is is that, um, uh, and I'm trying to remember the guy's name, Sam Stein? Okay. Is that possibly it? Anyway, could be. Uh, he was he was at a cocktail party with two of his more famous stock and uh, people, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. And Catherine Hepburn had just finished filming or doing a film with David Lean, and she said, "Well, you should get David Lean." And he's like, "Well, has he ever done anything like this?" She says. No, but I'm sure he's capable of it. And so that's how he got it, it was on a recommendation from Catherine Hepburn. And so the reason he even took it was is he had just finished a divorce and was flat broke. So actually he got paid half of what William Holden did. But it was still a bonanza for him because they got a flat rate, which was about – he got about 100000 Holden got about 200000 plus a percentage of the gross. And Lean got uh, 100000 and a percentage of the gross. And so he made enough that he was able to um, 
to continue on uh, and and then finish the remaining four marriages that he ended up getting divorced from before he died. I think he was married six times altogether. So it's by happenstance that he ended up doing this film. Well, it gives credence yet again. It should be almost our motto on the beginning of this show that a film is a series of happy accidents. It's just another example. We've now pulled out two significant ones, sitting on the tarmac and how David Lean even came to be associated with this. Oh, I have a third one that's even greater. Do you want me to do it now or do you want me to wait until later in the show? That's up to you. All right. Do you know how the theme, you know, the whistle started? David Lean had recruited actually former POWs from Japanese prisoner of war camps to be in the film because he figured they would bring a sense of reality to the film that normal actors wouldn't. So of the troops that are shown there, about half of them had actually been POWs in the Pacific. So they were out marching, and Lean is up on top of a hill, and he's looking down, and he, of course, yells out at a, on a bullhorn, you know, you guys march like shit. Um, is there something you can do to try to get some rhythm so that you're marching in unison? One of the guys who had actually been in a prisoner of war camp, but in Europe, um, had been awarded as like the champion whistler of the British Army. And he knew this song. So he started whistling the song. And pretty soon everybody in the troop was whistling the song. And Lean was so impressed by the song that he asked the guy who wrote the cor- or the music and, and score to incorporate it into the actual music of the movie. So this was not intended. It was by accident that it happened, and that's how it happened. In fact, there are actually words to that tune, and they are as follows. Hitler... He has got one ball, Goring has two, but they are small. Himmler has something similar, but poor old Goebbels has no balls at all. That might be your best work yet. I, I really don't have a whole lot to add in, in that particular regard. That That's just great. And the fact that that's probably the second most famous uh, musical piece outside of the the uh sequence from the great escape uh or as far as like war music it is just classic all right i i let's just move ahead uh who did you have as your best secondary performer holden every time i watch william holden in a film i'm just amazed at how good he really was and how natural he was Honestly, this movie worked better for me from the supporting characters more than the primary characters. So my best secondary performer is actually James Donald, and I could have very easily... I I almost went with a tie with Jack Hawkins. I think they were the two people that shined any time that they were on, and they seemed to just come forward 
in any scene that they were a part of. I think you could give, theoretically, something... I, I can't remember the name of the character for uh, uh, Colonel Saito, but I, I think he could have equally been as involved. I guess I put myself in the shoes of Hawkins, where you're the British commander who's leading this mission, and you've got this guy who, I guess, is faking being an officer, and at the same time, you're playing this like high-mindedness against him, where he's trying to weasel out of every scenario and all of the other things that go on. At the same time, more than anything else, and this is why I give him the secondary performance, James Donald plays the character that's the conscience of the movie. Every time he pops up, it's to simp or subtly insert, is this really what we're supposed to be doing? Is this our responsibility as POWs to successfully help them make a bridge? Not that we're even making them a bridge, but we're making them a better bridge in a better location and doing it to the best of our ability using all of the knowledge and skill that we have to somehow tell them what? That we can? Okay, what's the utility of that? There, there's like no pragmatism in anything that Nichols, Nicholson does. And I think that's why I related to James Donald's character. I think it's um, telling the only other movie I know him from is The Great Escape. Uh, I don't remember him being in, in anything else. But I, I just, for all of the times that I wanted to yell at Nicholson, it seems like Donald pops up just in time to say the thing that I'm thinking. Uh, so who's your most charismatic? Saisu Hayakawa, uh, the Japanese actor who played uh, uh, General Saito. Um, he had a presence in the film that you were automatically drawn to him whenever he was on screen. And the interesting part is, is he had been a huge star in silent films in Hollywood. He had actually lived um, in, or in California for a long time before this movie was shot and had retired because once talkies started, he had a Japanese accent. So he never made the transition. But they were doing films uh, about Japan and such. He was a huge sex symbol during the, the, the silent era. And you could tell why. He just had a presence that you paid attention to whatever he was doing or um, whatever he was trying to say or do. And it just drew me to him to always pay attention to him and watch him throughout the entire time he was on screen. I will definitely say that he has two rather... Uh, different roles in this movie. The first one is, is the, he's the obstinate commander of the camp that is trying to force Nicholson. And I think it's somewhat telling that halfway through this movie, when he finally backs down, that he just seems to go with a whimper and he's almost like a, a beaten dog that he just buries himself under the surface. He goes along with whatever Nicholson has done to the point that Nicholson seems like he's in charge for the second half of the movie of the POW camp. And so I certainly get where it's coming from because every scene that he's in, you do gravitate to what he's doing because I think he's doing the most 
um, significant lifting of the scene whenever he's on. But I went in a different direction. I went with Jack Hawkins. I know he's only in it for mostly just the second half of the scene. But he has this above-it-all quality anytime he's in the movie. Up until that one scene where they literally stop because they're not going to leave him behind. And that's when Holden kind of inserts himself and moves forward with the rest of the movie. But even at the end of the movie... He is the biggest part of any scene that he's a part of. He's It's almost like a puppeteer that he's in control of the situation and always seems to have an answer or something else that's going on and has this certain confidence that I bought into. I can understand that. I also uh, would like to mention that it's another film that we're going to cover at some point. He will come back around in our Ben-Hur episode, which I, I – when I saw him at first, I forgot he was in that movie, and I'm like, where have I seen this guy? And then it came back around to me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, best scene. Do you want to go first with a nominee? Yes, Nicholson's Reflection on the Bridge. It was Nicholson looking back on his career in the Army – and he realized that really he hadn't accomplished anything. And that bridge was his accomplishment. He looked at that bridge as being a tangible result of his military service. You've become ultimately predictable. Anytime I see one of these um, <laughs> middle-aged reflection speeches or moments in a movie – I'm like, oh, yeah, Dad's going to mention this. I don't even need to bother with bringing it up. You're going to gravitate to it like a a cat on yarn. Anyway, I I certainly understand that. And I guess I understand it maybe even a little bit more in hindsight that at a certain point, particularly in your life, you wonder if it's had any meaning, if anything that you've done has a significance or impact, what your legacy is going to be after you're gone. And I think that does tie in with the plaque that is re- or erected as they finish the bridge, ultimately. And then it's tied into the end where you see it floating down the river. I think that was a great form of symbolism uh, by Lean and yet another uh, point in the category for him as my best performer. I'm going to go with the dinner between Nicholson and Saito as my first one. Ultimately, I think this is the scene where things are the best. And some of these lines, there's a particular line that I'll eventually nominate. They're basically talking and he's trying to give him a form of understanding that says, I'm throwing you a rope here. You can continue to hold out, but I'm at least extending a olive branch and the, the two back and forths of this whole thing. And I think it's really exemplified by this particular um, moment. Do you know what will happen to me if this bridge is not ready in time? I haven't the foggiest. I'll have to kill myself. What would you do if you were me? Well, I suppose if I were you, I'd have to kill myself. And it's just like taunting him almost. All right, I found your weak moment. You need more from me. And so you're going to eventually have to bend to my will in this movie. I've got you over a barrel. So fuck you. What's your next one? Nicholson's conversation with Clipton in the uh, iron box. 
I think that that scene really is Clifton trying to talk reason to Nicholson, trying to get him to understand that he may, you know, what he's trying to accomplish may not be worth what he's going through in order to get it. I, I just thought it was a great scene of rationality versus rigidism. I think the word I used before was pragmatism. I, I, sure, a, I like that. Yeah, there, there's I, a definite... I, go ahead. I, I think the British, it's not pragmatism as much as it is being rigid. Well, no, I mean pragmatism from the point... it we, we carry back to what this film is about and emphasizing those two different things. Pragmatism is on the side of the American version of this that says either acquiesce or they're not going to follow the rules. We need to escape because we're never going to survive here under their leadership. Whereas the British is a more um, stubbornness and pride. So rigidness works, but you get where I'm going. Yes. I also had that one down as a possible nominee, but I'm going to... Uh, emphasize another one, and it's something I've kind of hinted around when you uh, nominated the um, uh, oh, I can't even remember his name now, but uh, Hayakawa. And it's the scene of basically where Nicholson takes over the planning of the bridge. Where he's uh, can we get a cup of tea? And here are all of the plans for the bridge, and this is why we have to build it in a different area, and we're going to do all of this stuff. And he finally gets to the end of the meeting, and they've clearly been there for a while, and uh, Hayakawa is just sit- or Saito is just sitting at the end of the table. He hasn't literally said anything. That Everything's been going on around him, and they're finally asking him to make decisions. Well, can we have this? It's already been ordered. Well, uh, are you okay with this? It has already been ordered, and I think they do that three or four times for emphasis, but it just – that was the scene where you get that Nicholson has won this battle of wills against the – eventually pay it off at the very, very end, but it's a nice thing to um, add into the writing, and the fact that it didn't detract at all just makes it that much better. Um, I had one other scene that I liked, which is the bathtub scene where they're talking to each other on the phone, and they do it as a split screen, and they manage to get their feet to link up uh, like they're touching on the split screen, both in the bathtub. Yes. I thought that was kind of a way of portraying a sense of intimacy developing between the two without... um, It was a level of sophistication that they could do and imply a lot that still couldn't be shown in 1959. That is definitely a point in favor of its novelty. Again, that's going to come up later. Did either of you have any other ones that you'd like to do? Right. I don't know if you would say it's a favorite scene, but I, when they started um, dating and they were going to different places in New York, I thought the filmography was really good, where they overlaid the pictures of them holding hands um, in front of all these famous things in New York and all these things that they were doing, 
And I just, I really enjoyed it because, well, I've been to New York, so I've seen some of those things. But, but just the way that she had different outfits on, so you can tell it was different days, and and um, that they were enjoying each other's company. And and I think that might have been something kind of new for that time. I'm not sure, but where they, where they put their picture over the top of the, the film of, you know, what was happening in the background, and. So I just thought that was really unique. It's not really a scene or interplay between people, but more of just showing the time span that they had spent so much time together going to all these various things. Uh, before we get to that, Mom, you already said that the piano bar is your favorite scene. I've kind of alluded to mine being the, uh, let's say, late night call, more or less. Dad, what was your favorite scene? Uh, the scene at the bar, the hidden door. All right, so then, since we have that out of the way, what then, out of the ones we've nominated to this point, is the best scene for you? Mom, I'll let you go first. I don't know. I think maybe the the bathtub with their legs up on the wall, and I just think that shows the level of the intimacy that they had been striving for and that both of them had been missing in their life. Well, I actually had thought seriously about, and I'm not just going to use the the one scene with Brad and uh, the and Rex going back and forth on the phone. I was going to do the entire montage where they went through and he kept dropping notes. First, you know, maybe the guy's a phony. He's going to take you up to his room and just, you know, make a pass at you. And then the next time is, is well, maybe, you know, the, he's one of those guys that likes recipes and his mom <laughs> the foreshadowing of the dates yeah yeah and he was set her up to to make it easier for him to score with her later um to me that was that was what i loved i thought that was uh classic i'm gonna nominate brad trying to pawn off uh his cousin moose uh and or family friend i think family friend is the the word they used for it in the in the uh, movie itself, but that, to me, that's kind of indicative of where this movie went for probably a good, oh, I don't know, 40% of it in the middle, and how much he has to think on his feet. It's probably one of the best uses of Rock Hudson in that moment, that he, he has that persona that we just mentioned that, that charismatic nature, the intangible quality, and that's the epitome of it in that moment. Oh, is but to, the, one of the best lines of the film, not the best, but, you know, one of the best lines of the film is in there, and it's it's uh, it's your moose, happy hunting, as he leaves the... And I just love that. I just It, may, it makes me laugh. It's your moose, happy hunting. He just carries that off so well. It was a really good interplay between Randall and Hudson in the moment where it seemed like neither one was uh, lower than the other one as far as talent and that they could really have that nice interplay moment where you're, you're clearly getting it from the, the side of everybody's had that friend that's tried to pawn somebody off on them or try and do that uh, unruly favor. But in this case, he's trying to do the opposite and trying to get rid of him by making up this ruse. And so it, it just works on a multi-level nature. All right, so 
most indelible moment for you? What is the thing from watching this that you remember the most? Mom, it is your favorite movie. What is your most indelible thing? Uh, I would say him carrying her across the city with that uh, he, uh, electric blanket cord hanging from from her as he's as he's you know struggling through the city and the the woman with the little boy that stops and says, "Mommy, what are they doing?" And she said, "Oh, I'll tell you when you grow up." Um, you know, and he and she asks for the officer to to stop. He's you know. And the officer says, oh, I, uh, I can't remember the exact line, but, but you know, and they're friends, and he's, he would be carrying her off, too. So I, I, I just, I think that um, it shows, again, the length that he went to the realization that he had come upon the best thing in his life to this point, and he wasn't going to let it get away. I've always wondered, however, how he got into her apartment because her apartment would have been locked and Alma wasn't there yet. So how he just barged in on her apartment and got into her room to carry her off is... He kicked, he kicked in, in the, the door. door. Okay. You, you listen, you go back and watch it. He kicked in the door. By you the way... the um, lock breaking. Yeah. <laughs> so he was angry at that point. So... All right, most indelible thing to me, Brad Allen's light switches. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The classic bachelor pad. I'm not going to ruin it for you. Go watch the movie. It is available basically for free. Just download the Peacock app, and they should be paying me the advertising dollars for making you go watch it. But uh, it is available for you you will uh, know exactly what I'm talking about when you see it. All right, this is a good spot to take a quick break. We will be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Welcome back. Let's get into best lines. Mom, what is your first nominee? I um, love the... Um Line when he first calls her and he'll, he wants to go out to dinner with her. It was the night after they had first, uh, you know, ridden back in the car and he drops her off and all that. And she says, he asks her on a date the following night and she says, oh, no, I always keep tomorrow night open. So I really love that line. It makes me laugh every single time. He says, I suppose you have something going on tomorrow night. And she said, oh, no, I always keep tomorrow night open. That does seem like your type of line. <laughs> I heard lines like that at one point in time. <laughs> okay. When you were much more charming, Dad. What is your first nominee? Boy. 
Uh, Mr. Allen, this may come as a surprise to you, but there are some men who don't end every sentence with a proposition. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> All right. The first one I'll nominate, uh, this one has more personal history and if uh, you want to contact us, our email is greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. But, Brad, I've had hangovers before, but this time even my hair hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ma, what is your next nominee? I love when Tony Randall is talking and um, he says, I'm part of a minority group, millionaires. Oh, and this is the part why I ended up nominating him where I did for best secondary performance, because that entire line would make everybody unlikable, except apparently Tony Randall. <laughs> everybody thinks they're a victim, especially people with money. Oh. Yes. All right, Dad, what do you got next? Well, what they say in Texas is never drink anything stronger than you or older. Uh, the next one I had down, Brad, she is the sweetest. She is the loveliest. She is the most talented woman I have ever met. That's what you said when you married that stripper. She wasn't a stripper. She was an exotic dancer with trained doves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that will come back around when we get to novelty. But a very risque line for 1959. Yes. Uh, Mom, what do you got next? You're like a pot-bellied stove on a frosty morning. Oh, God. You had to go for the, the heartwarming one? Yeah. So in character. Dad, what do you got? <laughs> if there's anything worse than a woman living alone, it's a woman saying or she likes it. We've already given some of the context for that one, so I'm going to launch into my next one. Uh, look, I don't know what's bothering you, but don't take your bedroom problems out on me. I have no bedroom problems. There's nothing in my bedroom that bothers me. Oh, that's too bad. If you want the level of innuendo, I give you Exhibit A. Mom, what's next up for you? Um... At the beginning of the movie when she's talking to um, to Brad on the phone and he, he tells her that her life is drab and she says, if I could get a call in sometimes, my life wouldn't be so drab. <laughs> Dad, do you have any other ones? I mentioned this earlier. It only takes a, one sip of wine to know it's a good bottle. Uh, the last one that I have, well, actually, I have a couple more. So, uh, Jan and Brad. Jan, he was a perfect gentleman. Brad, that's even worse than I thought. What do you mean? Well, there are some men who, hmm, how shall I put it? Well, they're very fond of their mothers. They like <laughs> to share bits of gossip, collect recipes. What a vicious thing to say. Mm-hmm. That is dripping with innuendo. Uh, I think most people anymore would have a hard time guessing uh, that he's being uh, referential to Light in the Loafers, but uh, given the way that people pretty much tiptoed around that subject for a long time, 
this is very fitting. Do either of you have any others left? I still got two other small ones. I do. I have um, uh, Harry, the elevator guy, and Jan are in the elevator, and Harry says to Jan, why does she have to go and get stoned every night? And Jan says, I don't know, Harry. Maybe she has a party line. <laughs> so... It was just cute, though, the inner the interaction, how angry she was about this whole party line business and and, um, you know, just the interplay, his little piece in the in the puzzle of this movie was very cute. Dad, do you have any remaining? Uh, No, I do not. There is one left. And I said this before we were talking about the scene, and that is it's your moose. Happy hunting. All right, I've got two other small ones. Can you believe that? They sent a woman. That's like sending a marshmallow to put out a bonfire. (laughs) Yes. The other one I had, uh, Brad, in reference to Alma, the State Department could use her. What a party girl she'd make in Moscow. (laughs) Yes. All right, so out of all of these, we have to uh, come up with a best line if you want, we can have an honorable mention and then funniest line. So, what is the best line to you? Ma, we will start with you. I really like the one that's, oh no, I always keep tomorrow night open. Dad? You are my inspiration. If you notice the, the, the notes for that portion of it, Every time there's something pivotal, they play those notes. Yes, they do. And that was done on purpose. So I'm going to take my uh, bedroom problems because it's repeated throughout the movie. Uh, To me, that was kind of indicative of the interplay that was going on through the whole thing. For Funniest Line... How can something in 1959 that references exotic dancers slash strippers not be your nominee? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the bonfire and marshmallow, I feel, is like one that is right out of the Dana Duncan snark playbook. So I'm going to put that in honorable mention. Do either of you have any uh, thoughts as to funniest line or honorable mentions? I, I, I do like the I, I've had hangovers before, but this time even my hair hurts. I thought that line was funny other than the family situation. <laughs> it is a good line. All right. So I'll, I'll put that one into honorable. Me- now, you know what? I'm going to put that as a funniest line because it's got so much uh, extra character to it as far as we're concerned. All right. So. Mom, you have yet to be exposed to our uh, what we have now referred to as our Stanley rubric. Are you ready to go through our rubric? Who is Stanley? Well, I'll do my best. All right. So we start this off with Legacy. And since we have a guest on, it's maybe a good refresher, but I'm going to go first on this one. And just kind of give my background on this one. So Legacy, we've kind of already referred to this a few different times. These are two people that were big movie stars in their time, but have kind of been forgotten. I don't think that an average 
30-something or other is necessarily going to know who either of these people are because there aren't any huge movies or the ones that are constantly referred to when we uh, think about old cinema as big movie stars attached to it. It's certainly not going to be Humphrey Bogart or Cary Grant, James Stewart, stuff that's actually survived a little bit of time. Um, even Judy Garland gets that treatment because of The Wizard of Oz. So it's kind of been one that's flown under the radar for a long time. In addition to that, this is a mostly forgotten romantic comedy, even among some of the, uh, let's say, big wigs or critics. This was only 99th on the AFI list of like top 100 passion movies of all time, and that's its only recognition outside of its box office at the time. So the only other thing that I could say about it is, while it did launch these two in their initial careers, they certainly didn't have any staying power. I mean, we already referred to the fact that Rock Hudson kind of had to move over to TV, which is usually the inverse of how things happen. Usually you did TV and then would be able to transition into movies. And usually by the time you hit TV, you were pretty well written off. This is kind of one of those situations where uh, I think for the most part, this is a forgotten movie. And the other part of this, I think it might have had larger staying power had the sequel that they were developing in about 1980 uh, that they had everybody signed up to redo. Everybody was interested. Rock Hudson was signed up. Doris Day was going to do it, although she had been retired by that point, which is part of the reason that's contributing to the fact that uh, it eventually did not get made. Even Tony Randall was ready to uh, star in this one and kind of had a similar script. They had a lot of the pieces ready to go, but it just wasn't realized because I don't know if there was quite the appetite ready to do something like this again and that it would have staying power in the same when it came out so for me i gave it a five i think it's pretty well middle of the road and i'm being a little bit kind because it's mom's favorite movie <laughs> you don't have to be kind because of me and i probably agree with you it it doesn't appeal to a wide uh variety and you talk about it people have never heard about it and it's nice because i've been able to introduce this rom-com to my family, um, to other people, and um, they've also enjoyed it. Uh, not that they would go out of their way to necessarily watch it again, but for me, it's it's pure joy to watch this film, and I don't know why. It's just it just is, and so definitely, I, I agree with you. Most people don't know anything about it, so I five is I would think appropriate. Dad, what do yeah, you think? I had a seven. And this is why. And I'm going to tell you this. And I don't know if we've ever discussed it, but this is part of my calculation. And I guess I hadn't really articulated it or thought about it. Sometimes legacy is not what the common platform indicates or what the common situation is. For example, what I'm saying is, is legacy to me also has a certain element where if a person hasn't, and that's part of what this this whole project is, is getting people to watch films that they've never heard of or seen before, which are great films, to get them to watch them again. If a film is something that if you could convince somebody to watch, they go, hey, this is a good film, 
that's part of the legacy, that it stands up to the test and you can get people who have no experience with it to watch it and enjoy it. And so that's why I upgraded it because I've watched so many people through the years that your mother is convinced to watch it come away thinking, oh, this is actually a good film. Yeah, to be honest, that's kind of where I sit having my first viewing on it. So I certainly understand where you're coming from that, with that even if I don't necessarily agree with your premise. Well, to prove a point, um, my dad sat down and watched it with Dana when – um, when he was watching it even, and he hadn't seen it in a long time and he thoroughly enjoyed it again, you know, and it had probably been many, many years since he saw it, but he remembered the film and he sat down and he watched the entire thing with, with Dana. So, so there is some legacy that, I mean, he saw it the first time in a theater, but yeah, so maybe dad's right. So ultimately, that average will give us a 5.66, but I gave this a much higher score for impact significance, and I think it has a lot to do with what I already mentioned from my legacy score. This promoted both Doris Day and Rock Hudson as two of the biggest movie stars of their era. This was one of the biggest films of that particular year. It was a rom-com that got a lot of Oscar nomination and recognition, which was not something that necessarily was uh, a commonplace. It certainly isn't right now. I mean, we get it with certain select films, uh, like the one we discussed last week or our previous episode on Roman Holiday, but those are the the rule, and so I think that has to be taken into effect in some regards. This also was the first of three Doris Day Rock Hudson movies that they would end up doing together, so I think that has to go into as a factor for it. Now, I wouldn't say that this was like the biggest thing that changed movie making in the initial five years after it was done, which is usually the parameter we put on these things, but I thought it was at least, with all of these factors, worthy of an 8.5. Dad, what do you think? I had an 8, and I had it for the same reason, because... I really think this started a whole uh, revolution of rom-coms that had existed, but not really to the same degree. I mean, there were a lot of them that were okay. They didn't draw real well. But you have to remember that this started into the 1960s. And the 1960s were a period of great turmoil. And so people would go to the film or to see a film more as an outlet or an escape. And so they were looking for things that just portrayed life as being much more pleasant. So I think this really set in place a wide variety of films. Because not only did Doris Day do these three, I think she did two or three films with James Garner that were romantic comedies. She did several others. I think she did one with Brian Keith that was called... Um, with six, you get uh, egg roll. Yes. Um, about a blended family. So the it started a whole group of films that ran through the 1960s, and then she got to the point where she started getting in her 40s, and for Hollywood, of course, that's when you aged out. So she ended up doing television, and that was how she ended her career. But I think that that's why. 
this has some impact significance to me is just because I think this started because it really was the one that made a lot of money for the producers. It was a simple formula, you know, other than the uh, some relatively simple production costs. You could do the film. It would take short shooting schedule, low budget, and make money. And it started a whole group of these films that came through the 60s and made people feel better. Well, I, I agree. I think that this was the first of a whole genre of, of the rom-com. I think that um, before this, there there wasn't that silly, ha-ha, um, cutesy movie And the two of them have a chemistry. And I think it's that chemistry that can be both serious and it could be silly that really worked. And I think that from here it catapulted not just her but others to make these sort of silly, nonsensical movies that don't have heavy plots. And so I I, I think an eight is an appropriate score as well. So that is going to end up giving us an 8.17 for our final number. And I guess if I'm going to put my finger on it, I will say that uh, one of the things you two have kind of danced around in trying to describe this is I I don't know if it created a genre itself, but it's more of a subgenre. To this point, a lot of the movies that I mentioned before were more romantic, more sentimental. This is kind of a subgenre where it's almost like a Jerry Lewis rom-com. No, have you really watched much Jerry Lewis? I wouldn't There's a lot of slapstick. There's a lot of short uh, cut humor. There's uh, a, a lot more silliness and rather uh, ridiculous to it. And there's a certain pacing to it that are all familiar to that aspect to it as far as i'm concerned i think it's a little different than that this this was a lot more innuendo it was considered at the time a highly sophisticated comedy because of its strong innuendo you had to stop and think about certain things and what the double meanings were the double intent uh behind certain things and i think that that's working this, I think, is what you would call an intellectual rom-com. There were several rom-coms. It was boy meets girl, girl does something, boy does something even worse and screws up, girl forgives, they run off into the sunset. Relatively simple and, and mindless. This you had to actually think about and do some understanding of the situation. And I think this created a more of how it was taken. And uh, Scorsese... Um, has also said that that was not the original intention. So you are correct that that was not it. However, it it would have made more narrative sense to me because I don't think that in a more modern sense we would have just let him completely off the hook like that. I think there would have been a much bigger court case and then you would have had a battle of public opinion than there would ever be where he just walks away. Not in 1976. And, well, then that's what I mean. In in a more modern sense, I'm looking at it being, you know, 20 plus years younger than you. Um, and, you know, seeing this as 
my generation would see it, where that guy never walks away from this. And that idealized version where the girl that he used to fawn over gets in the back of his cab and now he's acceptable to talk to again, you know, or that he's lionized. Um, I, I just don't think that happens other than this uh, fantasy that he would have concocted for himself that he's the hero of his story. Let, let me just let you in on a little secret. I, or as you were aware, and the audience may not be, but I spent the first 17 years of my career as a criminal defense lawyer. And you spend a lot of time in law school talking about the silent argument that you cannot ethically ever make, but which existed and exists yet. But in 1976, and even when I started practicing in 1989, it existed. It's called nullification, which is, yes, the person did the crime, and everything about it has been established, and the crime really did happen, and all the elements are met. But we as a jury just don't think this person should be convicted. And so we're just going to nullify what the law is because we think this guy should, or gal, or whoever, shouldn't go to jail. And you have... You mean O.J. Simpson. Yes. You are trained as a lawyer and as a defense attorney to know that this exists and be able to figure out how to argue it without ever saying it, without ever coming to the edge of the cliff. Because if you do and you step off, you lose your license. But... If you don't and you figure out how to get to the edge without falling over, you become a very successful lawyer. Ergo, F. Lee Bailey and Gary Spence and all kinds of high-profile um, celebrity lawyers. Yeah, I. your point is well taken. I just, and it, it leads to my second remaining question. How does he get out of all the trouble? I, I maybe I it's my lack of understanding and maybe I'm not as nuanced on this as I could be, but I, I just that that's where I struggle with the ending of the film. If it's not a dream sequence or not a fantasy of his as he's like getting arrested or whatever else, uh, I don't understand that world or how things would have played out that way. It just doesn't make sense to me. So, and maybe that's, again, my lack of nuance or um, understanding of historical perspective, as you've already alluded to at times. But that, that's where my problem exists. And a movie I actually liked and thought was really good. I will say it, and I don't mean to be mean by saying it, and it's not what I intend if, because it has negative connotations. You have a certain level of naivete. When you've practiced law as long as I have, you become very jaded about life and society and situations because you see everything at its base. Yeah, and I, I can buy that. I, I certainly don't I don't have a response to it other than what I've already said, essentially. But uh, final question I had, what does he see in the last image of the film? So we get a very quick flash where his attention goes to the rearview mirror we get a flash of red and i think 
artistically, at least from the, again, the cursory background information I looked into on this, is we're supposed to believe that there is another thing that has grabbed Travis's attention and he's going to go on another the next um, impulse to snap. Yeah. So uh, giving that, that is what it's implying. License. So, uh, you know, we're not supposed to exactly see it. I think it's somewhat of a poetic ending um, and touch in that, that situation. Um, you could deja ultimately vu. say that, well, it's possible. It's deja vu all over again, said the famous New York catcher of the Yankees, Yogi Berra. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, I suppose that's a good place to, um, uh, cut it for this evening. Um, we've spent, uh, quite a long time on a movie that, uh, I don't think you would have thought we had quite such a, a long conversation for. But um, uh, I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Uh, if uh, you have not um, subscribed to the uh, podcast yet, um, please uh, hit follow on Spotify or subscribe on iTunes or whichever platform you're listening to. So you get Google the new episode. Sure. Uh, but whichever one you're listening to us on, um, please hit subscribe so you can get a new episode like this every week. Uh, next week, we are planning on doing um, The Dirty Dozen. Um, I don't remember what year that is right offhand. Uh, but uh, it is another one of the films that I have yet to have seen. Um, but a little bit more of an um, um, anti-hero but fun uh, entertaining movie, um, World War II movie that uh, we can po possibly pick apart. So, uh, any final thoughts? Well, I'm looking forward to next week, and the what this movie means to me will be a tribute to um, my father, because part of the reason why I love movies is um, through him, and one of those movies was The Dirty Dozen, so... Well, that'll be a nice story, at least. So uh, stay tuned for that next week, everybody. Um, please rate and subscribe. Um, I already went through the subscribe, but if you give us a rating, that'll help us uh, move up the suggestibles list on whichever um, podcast stream you're listening to. And we'll see everybody next week. Trickled down to you. I just thought that as part of this cast or web uh, or this uh, podcast that we should at least recognize that. So uh, to that, I just make note of that because the, his name was Ronald Duncan. And, um, you know, this is going to be, this is probably the most uh, notoriety he's gotten in his life. Probably if more than uh, a dozen people watch this or listen to this. Um, so, and with that, I'll just close out and just, Beg everybody, please, please, if you smoke, stop. If you're not, if you don't, don't start. Uh, well said. Um, again, I, I think, you know, ultimately this is somewhat of a testament to that legacy. And so um, it's fitting that you would add that in there. Um, 
So, uh, all right. All things considered, as far as housekeeping, we have uh, Silence of the Lambs coming up, uh, then followed by E.T. Uh, we have not decided uh, a couple of the movies after that, but this is our 20th episode, which means our specialty episode for the 25th is coming up here in the next few weeks. We have yet to pick that one specifically, but uh, I am hoping to not only have a good one, but to also have a um, uh, another guest host uh, to help us celebrate our halfway point of the first year. So stay tuned for that. So as usual, I wish we could uh, talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Uh, please rate, subscribe, and review. We would really appreciate it. For um, every five-star review, it helps people find the podcast. Uh, you know, subscribing will keep new ones. Uh, usually, we do these every Wednesday evening, and I have them up usually on Wednesday night uh, late, uh, if not early Thursday morning for most of you. Um, and uh, so if you want to continue to receive regular episodes, um, and have this in your feed, uh, please subscribe. Uh, otherwise, uh, we'll see you next week for our talk of Silence of the Lambs. And if you are interested, stick around for a few minutes afterwards for our uh, bonus segment on unanswered questions from Zodiac to continue the conversation. Thanks, everybody, and have a great week. Okay, bonus segment time. So remaining questions, uh, maybe we'll evolve this segment. This is the first one we're really doing. Um, if we have um, open-ended stuff or um, things that we'd like to discuss, um, just for people who stick around so we can keep the podcast to a decent limit. But um, all right, top one on uh, the list of things that I have. So who do you think the Zodiac really is? Oh, hmm. I actually agree with their assessment. Um, I do think it is Alan. Um, the DNA evidence, <clears throat> that's kind of a weird thing because how can you pull DNA off? And I say this as an archaeologist who I know that we've pulled DNA out of soil that is a thousand years old. How can you pull DNA off an envelope that has been touched by, you know, how many people, um... In the last 33 years. how And how can you know that it's accurate? Well, that's leading into one of my other questions, but um, literally nobody in this movie is using basic uh, evidence protection or, like, gloves, like, ever. They're just handling things willy-nilly. The amount of people at the paper that touch stuff and, like, you know, people that had no handling of care of any of this now i guess this is way before csi but even so you'd think that there'd be somebody that would like don't touch anything don't do anything just leave it exactly as it is and walk away until somebody can secure a crime scene well you have to understand first of all this is mitochondrial dna okay so this is you know you're gonna have multiple strains of DNA that are, are going to be available. And then, um, you know, they're going to take, you know, and then trace the various things involved. Um, you know, and um, so I don't have a problem with that. 
as far as the killer, I think it was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you leave finished, me to be my he finished being governor about the same time as the Zodiac. And then he started. He stopped about the time he decided to run for president. So makes about as much sense as anything. Okay, thank you for that one and taking it so seriously. But <laughs> anyway, um, okay. So I'm gonna posit a theory that uh, I think there were multiple people. Not that they were working together. But that the person who wrote the letters is different from the person who committed the first couple of murders. But how could he have the uh, exact things, though, that the cops had not released to the public? That That is one of the loopholes, because that's actually a common, you know, thought of somebody who um, listens to a lot of, like, True Kind and everything else. Um, but how would that have, you know, been... Um, one of the other popular theories is that it was somebody different who committed the first um, four murders and um, somebody else um, was writing the later letters. Well, I think that the person who wrote the letters had the details uh, of the whole cab driver one and the clue, or at least not clue, but the, the evidence, because I think he did commit that specific murder, but that was only to basically give him credence for everything else that was going on, because that was the one murder that really wasn't like any of the others. Well, serial killers break pattern all the time. I mean, um, some of them have no pattern at all. Should we look no further than the confession killer? I mean, he's Killers also take credit for things that they never did constantly, but um, they break patterns. They skew from their their norm, and um, the the idea that some police present in this that the Zodiac hated women and so he was specifically attacking women. Well, he, because he left two men alive, he turned around when he heard Mike moaning and shot him twice more. He didn't mean to leave him uh, alive. It was purely by chance and luck that he survived. I... And that shows me, you know, somebody who's a bit of an amateur. So it's somebody who could break pattern, who just wants the notoriety, who wants, you know, the fame that's involved in this. They're not in it for actually having the motives of, like, any uh, the most... Mm, like, controlled serial killers, I think he's more of an uncontrolled murderer. He he thrives off of the, uh, the attack, the fear that he induces in society. I don't know. I, I just... I, I, I have a hard time reckoning that with the inconclusiveness of everything else and um, the hard evidence pointing in one way or the other that there aren't the possibility of there being multiple people in parts of this and that there, um, we have an amalgamation that we've given too much because one person decided to try and take credit. So just well, my thought. But I, I also want to point out, though, that the t methods that they were using in the 70s 